welcome to this week's Is Jim Chalmers My Mummy or My Daddy <laughs> edition of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense or nonsense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land and do what you can to pay the rent. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm delighted that Crikey's Charlie Lewis is back in the studio. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, it feels like we've been very much ships in the night we for have. like we have two months. Zigzagging away from each other, but, but now <laughs> back together and it feels so good. <laughs> the magnets are back. Uh, we're going to be chatting to Sarah Krasnerstein about her really great reporting in the monthly this month. Uh, her piece, The Train Family Murders, The Age of Radicalisation, was just such a fantastic read. Um, I read it and read it again and can't wait to ask her about that. It's a media topic that keeps coming back uh, on on this show but just also generally because I guess there's a lot of it going around and um, it feels like something that's just growing the tension yeah. is growing more yeah, and yeah, more for sure. and our media uh, don't seem to be fully equipped <laughs> to handle it. Um, but first of all, the headline of the week, we alluded to it <laughs> at the top of the show. Here's the headline. Labor was always the mummy party. With this surplus, it's daddy as well. <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> I uh, had my cup of tea ready on Saturday morning and was in bed with, you know, the paper, ready to have a read. And I, I read that and I just felt like I, I wasn't expecting some sort of weird kink <laughs> my, with my political reporting. And I wasn't sure whether it was kink or sexism or strange sub-editing. <laughs> I mean, I think in this case, this is a wonderful combination of all three. Well, Certainly two, of, two, two out of three ain't bad. Well, the, the sub-editing uh, sort of option, which a lot of uh, reporters definitely point their finger at when something goes awry with a headline, was put to bed when um, a few paragraphs in uh, the, the journalist, I can't remember who actually was the writer. Peter Harcher. Peter Harcher. He's a, a very senior okay. uh, nine-paper guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he wrote, Harcher wrote, the centre-left parties have been seen to excel in the more, uh, and I quote, caring fields of health and education, the, quote, mummy aspect. Albanese is seeking to make Labor the mummy and daddy party, taking all the adult roles, <laughs> leaving the coalition with nothing but kid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he almost, he almost saves it with the kid stuff thing because that's a nice way to resolve Mm-mm. that idea. But <laughs> he does no such thing, Charlie. No such thing. Anyway, of course, Twitter was helpful um, to me at that point in time so that I didn't lose my mind. Apparently there is some context which Harcher would have been well advised to include in his piece, although I think it's, I have a sneaking suspicion it tells you a lot about who he's writing to for. Um, but I found or someone um, pointed me to um, something involving Tony Abbott and, of course, <laughs> of course, when there's some weird, you, I mean, very unerotic... <laughs> 
kinky political journalism, Tony Abbott slash, is very close to the appeals surface. appeals to a very old idea of what it is to be a man and a woman in yeah, this world, yeah, by yeah, the way. Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> so I found an article from the ABC in 2009 um, and it had a paragraph. A cliche of Australian politics is that the Liberal Party is supposed to do better at a federal level than the ALP because federal policy areas play to its strengths, the economy, defence, border security. Labor is supposed to do better in the state at the state level because that's where the responsibility for social policy lies, most notably health and education. This is the mummy party, daddy party theory of Australian politics. Now, like I said, I feel like Harcher should have probably given us some goddamn context yeah. because that was too much for me <laughs> on Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of assumed knowledge to have that you remember this, this idea. Uh, that I mean, it, it, does, it does sort of like... It, things like that do do sort of shudderingly remind you that life was quite different in 2009 <laughs> and that it certain things that, that we long did, ago. Yeah, it seems like it was just yesterday but but we talked very differently about about things like that um yeah no i mean i think also there is the there i did also see the the suggestion which i i think might have something to do with it of the the sub-editor who had a little bit of fun and who didn't have to make that the headline. <laughs> There's a lot of paragraphs before he mentions Mummy and Daddy. There really are. <laughs> but uh, he, that, that was the funnest thing. And, you know... It's we, clickable. We all clicked. It. We all clicked. Click- well, I made... Uh, yeah. Mm. Even if we clicked out of annoyance, we did click. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, something else that has um, reared its head again in a long line of head-rearing... <laughs> <laughs> yes. ..in the news... Um, Grifting, the grifters. The grifters. I was saying, you know, we should write the song. These are a few of my favourite media grifters. So, a topic we will probably get onto with Sarah um, Torin O'Brien, uh, who is um, one of the sort of leaders in this horrible situation playing out in Rockhampton, and that seems to be now you know, moving to other um, towns in Queensland. This awful kind of vigilante justice um, situation where certain residents are taking it upon themselves to, um, you know, maraud (laughs) as gangs. And and surround the houses of Indigenous kids. Yeah, so he was leading a group who who literally was in the front lawn and surrounding the house of of, um, an Aboriginal child and it's just terrible. Uh, and the media, uh, certain parts of the media anyway, um, yet again, just sort of um, going along with it. There was a Channel 7 report, mm. t- television report, where it was kind of like the reporter was riding with the vigilantes yeah, in a little yeah. ride-along situation, which just seems just seems incredibly irresponsible. And this is another one of those situations where... It seemed, you know, we have some great um, groups in this country who do the research into people like this, but it very quickly, well before that seven, Channel 7 report, um, it became very clear about who uh, Torin O'Brien is. Uh, he was a one-time leader of the Patriots of Defence League, or the Patriots Defence League, I should say, which is exactly what it sounds like, an anti-Islamic, pretty... Far-right. Far-right yeah. um, kind of white supremacist organisation. Uh, and there he was, his mug on sort of every news channel, acting as the concerned citizen, mm, you mm. know, we have to take it upon ourselves to... Um, you know, the, there's nothing being done about lawlessness and these kids are out of control and we have to take it upon ourselves. How can you not 
do the research about when you're interviewing someone like that, yeah, you know, who's yeah. putting I, themselves forward in this position. And, and Seven in particular has has form oh, in this area. Form. I mean, they, they a few but years back. But they knew. They would have, I mean, you know, okay, so I don't know exactly if they knew. However, <laughs> the, the information. It's bloody journalism if they didn't. The, yeah. Well, the information was broadly available mm. in the couple of days, you know, from lots of sources before they filed that report. Yeah, yeah. So that was a choice. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as, as you say, that, 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 that there, there, there's no um, explanation of a report like that, that that's uh, not either irresponsible or just or just shabby journalism, just just plain old didn't quite look into this. And or playing to who you think your audience is. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, you know, Seven, again, over the last couple of years, Seven has gotten a... F- has got bad form in this stuff. They've done a lot mm. of the reporting around the really confected African gangs crisis, quote unquote crisis mm. that we were supposed to be having in in Melbourne um, a few years back. They they um they also I, I was looking to this they they um uh, platformed Pauline Hanson's uh, anti white racism claim. Mm. They they put out a poll saying Senator Pauline Hanson claims that anti white racism is on the rise. Do you think that's the case? And more than half of their viewers. Did think that was the case, um, yeah. So it's, but I mean, as, as we were sort of saying on a, on a slightly, slightly more lighthearted note, this is obviously the a, the sort of most recent in a very long history yeah. of of people who um, you'd have thought they'd have googled before they put on. Well, and it's not, you know, it's not always the usual suspects. I mean, recently SBS um, was uh, the sort of the the news outlet that that really platformed. The crying pharmacist Trent Twomey, yes. uh, who is the Pharmacy mm. Guild president, um, who was mortified, apparently very emotionally moved, to cry in an interview in a news interview um, when the government's changes to um, prescription yeah yeah were, were announced, and um, you know once again Trent <laughs> was a Warren Inch staffer. Uh, he has had a long history with the Liberal Party and even further, right, I think One Nation. Um, so uh, once again, you think that you should mention this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it doesn't – I think the thing about it is it's always the uh, – the, the, the old phrase is, the, you know, it's always the cover-up that gets you. And I'm, I'm not saying that there's a cover-up going on here. Yeah. But it's always the fact that you didn't disclose the stuff that makes this stuff look exactly. weird. Exactly. It doesn't actually mean that someone who is deeply involved with the Liberal Party can, can have insight into what's good pharmacy. Like – He's obviously a pharmacist and he has is head of the Pharmacy Guild president, so it's okay to have a point of view. Yeah, 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 yeah. The tears, yeah. I don't know. But I think sometimes they get a little bit sort of, um, you know, starstruck by a great performance and it's, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like... I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, if, if they'd just written former Warren Inch staffer... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? At least you would have At that. At least there's yeah, some yeah. context. I mean, my favourite of these, and and by the way, I mean, I think, you know, it should be pointed out that the, the Labour does do this too. I oh, remember of yeah, when the um when the threatened um the threatened cuts to the the threatened and then eventually acted upon cuts to um penalty rates were being sort of were a big news story. There was the um 
there was a, a sort of a retail worker that they they were wheeling out to all these press conferences, being like, I I, I rely on these on these penalty rates, and and it's sort of transpired with a bit of digging that this guy was um, an SDA delegate, so uh. monumental Labour um, um, funding body, and also that he was under an agreement ironically negotiated by the SDA that, that insulated him completely from the changes that were actually happening. So none of, yeah, like, and it's like, just just find a different shop guy that actually is going to be... Yeah, but they're not going to do the performing that you want. Like, no, a, exactly. They're not quite ready for the camera. There's another one today which isn't necessarily party related, but again, it's so just like clunky. Mm. So um, Chris Lucas, does he mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. The uh, <laughs> A hardworking restaurateur, as I understand it. <laughs> so Chris Lucas, who some might um, know from his association with Chin Chin, uh, was in the news today basically saying to unemployed people to pull their finger out because... And he slammed the ridiculous jobbing, job seeker increase of yeah. $20 a week. Um, saying that he had at least 200 jobs available. This is Chris Lucas of the same chin-chin that has been done for underpaying... Major, major wage theft. Wage theft, (laughs) like underpaying their staff. Again, yeah, could what, you not find dude, another... Dude, why couldn't you fill another... <laughs> Don't tell me you couldn't find people who wanted to work for you. Exactly. <laughs> my my favourite one of these, uh, and that, that, is, that, is, that is very close to it, but my, my favourite one was... Uh, like, why not have an opinion about something else? Yeah, it's, but I mean, again, it's... It's so the, close to your grift. It's the classic... Um, it's, the, it's the classic um, thing of, like, deadline reporting where you go, yeah. I know if I call this guy, he's going to give me a half-decent quote and then I'll, yeah, okay. and then I'll get this in and I, you know... Um, the, the, my, my favourite one was I think the, it was to 2GB anyway, so they're probably... Yeah, I, like I say, there's, 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 you know, uh, different, different things that you're trying to achieve with these kinds of news mm. reports. My, my, my favourite of these was in, towards the, fir- the end of the first year of, of, of COVID and lockdown, tw- sort of October 2020, um, Channel 7 reported on the kind of uh, growing anger, I suppose, over Melbourne's lockdown. And and again, I'm not saying that that wasn't there and that it wasn't genuine and, it, and that it didn't genuinely affect people very adversely, even even relatively, as it turns out, relatively early on in, in what our lockdown was. Uh, they quoted what they called was a business leader called Andrew Abercrombie, uh, who was leading a group pushing for kind of greater opening up of the state. Uh, and then after you know after they interview him, they cut to Josh Frydenberg, then the Liberal treasurer, saying, "Well, got to say, I, I back that point of view." And it's like, well, yeah, he would, because the guy that you just <laughs> the guy that you just interviewed, who you didn't mention, was that he was a long time like Liberal Party member, and it, for a while had been the Victorian State Liberal Party treasurer. <laughs> no, and, and and then the the, the, oh, the wildest that's so part of that embarrassing. The they wildest... must have known. How could you oh, not oh, know? Oh, no, no, you, you, you can't not know that. Um, oh, they just take their audience for a fool's. But the, yeah, without, the, uh, the, the wildest thing is that's not the end of it. That wasn't the last oh, thing that might have been relevant to mention. My skin is crawling. <laughs> Abercrombie was also a member of the group. I don't know if people remember this. Uh, quite early on in the, uh, in the lockdown period, one of the little outbreaks came from a group of tourists returning oh, from Aspen. I'll stop it. He was one of that group. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you would say maybe, maybe this guy has an agenda of some sort. <laughs> Sarah uh, Krasnerstein is the best-selling author of The Trauma Cleaner and The Believer. 
As well as on Peter Carey, she also has written the quarterly essay Not Waving Drowning. Sarah's been awarded widely, including the Victorian Prize for Literature and the Victorian Premier's Prize for Nonfiction, as well as being a finalist for the Walkley Book Award. Sarah's written for The Guardian, Tablet Magazine, Long Reads, Literary Hub, The Jewish Quarterly, Mianjin and Oxford Handbooks Online, as well as other uh, various... academic journals and it's in her capacity as a regular contributor to the monthly and the Saturday paper that we welcome Sarah to the show this evening discussing her fantastic uh, piece that's in the current uh, edition of the monthly the train family murders welcome to triple r Sarah hi guys thanks for having me Thank you so much for joining us. Um, The subheading on this piece talks to the age of radicalisation. It's so timely, uh, obviously, and far-reaching given it relates to so much that we're seeing unfold in lots of various ways uh, across the country. And I think the power of this piece is pulling a lot of those threads together. Um, But it does centre on the train murders. Can you just remind listeners of those events and and tell us why you wanted to sort of, um, you know, look at that as as a kind of mirror for this um, sort of this time that we're in? Yeah, right. So uh, it's kind of, uh, well, the narrative kind of through line is the um, killings that took place on the 12th of December last year in Wiambilla, Queensland, where um, brothers Nathaniel and Gareth Train and uh, Gareth's wife, Stacey Train, killed two police officers and a neighbor. Um, And, you know, I think my interest was, like, less in the killings per se and more in the way they had been reported. So, you know, very quickly, and in the absence of the level of kind of legally proven facts we would see at the coronial inquest, which is still um, forthcoming, there was a really kind of confident narrative around who these people were, what uh, what they did, where culpability lay and did not lay, and very little curiosity about kind of the causes. Um, it was kind of more like relegated to this realm of the freaky, uh, bizarre, absurd, backwoods story uh, where these powers had unfolded. And, you know, nothing is ever that simple. So I was trying to see it through kind of a broader lens of the ecosystem in which um, men like Nathaniel and Gareth Fang could uh, exist and be activated um, and also how how Stacy uh, how Stacy's involvement uh, figured, and trying to understand kind of uh, the causes, I guess. Sarah, this is Charlie. Thank you um, so much for joining us. Um, it's yeah. it's such a uh, sprawling piece, uh, and I mean that in the best possible sense. Um, <laughs> so it's almost hard to know exactly where to start. I mean, I suppose we t- yeah. it touches on so many things. I'm, I hope that we'll be able to get to all of them in time. I suppose, I mean, in terms of the, the real focus of the show that we do, which is about sort of mainstream media in Australia and, and how it operates right. and how it works, you've talked a little bit about the reporting uh, sort of post the the event. Um, could you talk a little bit about your conclusions on the role that the mainstream media in Australia played, or not even just Australia, but in general, the role that it played yeah. leading up to events in this sort and kind of fermenting certain ways of viewing the world, I suppose? Yeah, so, you know, looking at uh, <clears throat> that media question is is super relevant and always, uh, 
seemed increasingly relevant. Um, you know, there had been a, a reluctance that we saw very early in um, labeling this as domestic terrorism uh, and some kind of uh, fluctuations in the way in which it was branded and spoken about um, in the mainstream media. Uh, and that kind of it was political, uh, politically motivated, and then it was religiously motivated because they had this premillennial premillennialist Christianity, Christian evangelicalism that was kind of strong in their, in their life. Um, and it was a, a bit of a dance. And I saw in that what we have been seeing in the last few years, um, particularly of uh, coalition governments, where we had a really strong reluctance to link right-wing conspiracist-based theories with right-wing politicking. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of resources had gone into that at a time in which we had this great kind of activation before the pandemic even of alternative right media. It spread um, on social media and the amplification of these grievance-based victimhood narratives that come out of Sky News, that come out of Fox News, and kind of we'd stopped even questioning to a large extent in the you know, normal discourse whether that was news or comment yet alone the kind of culpability of it in increasing paranoias um, and legitimate fears felt by a huge section of the population, legitimate in the sense that these were real fears for them. They were not connected to active threats, more in the way of the moral panic, but at the level of emotional experience, real enough that it activated people like the Train Brothers. So, yeah, that was my interest in the, in the media. It, I think also it's really interesting that, um, you know, I was actually really surprised when the it was labelled as um, uh, sort of terrorism, mm. <laughs> domestic terrorism, because we're so used to anything of this nature being treated as a one-off, um, you know, outlier event. And as you s- sort of said at the top of the show, they did start, it, that, that's where the discourse started. There was a lot of fascination about the blocks where they lived oh. as some sort of place, which was kind of, you know, um, you know, outside of society. Um, there was something interesting in your piece about how fast the radicalisation can happen now and that's oh. why it was really important to name this as it is. And when we look at sort of the history of this, you know, we don't analyse these sorts of events historically, and I'm thinking really Brenton Tarrant, (laughs) things like that, his role in Australia before he went to New Zealand. Do you think this has shifted anything in that narrative or in the way that these things are treated? I mean, I I don't think so Mm. yet. Um, I think we're still very much using perceptual shorthand for who is a uh, terrorist, Mm. religious or otherwise. Um, And we don't see, we don't have that same kind of willingness to extend the definition. Certainly in the year before the murders occurred, we had Queensland Police Service saying that the most active, uh, most likely terrorist threat in Queensland came from religiously motivated in the way of Islamic, uh, violent Islamic jihadist terrorists. So the fact that the next immediate next attack was two men that presented optically um, as, you know, more typically Aussie than that uh, description intended is confronting. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the academics that I interviewed at length for the piece, Dr. Josh Roos, who's a sociologist, political sociologist at Deakin, has said, we haven't shown that level of introspection or even curiosity about the factors that coalesce to create Terrence. We haven't shown any of that curiosity in the factors that coalesce to activate the trains so quickly. And what we know, and ASIO has, has said basically every year since it started doing these annual threat assessments, which I think started in 2019, was that miners are being activated at startling mm-hmm. rates because they're highly online, and that was only compounded by the pandemic. So maybe we're at the beginning of this. But I think more to the point, like, even if it's not a frequently seen event to have that level of violent activation, it doesn't need to be... Fr- frequent to cause mass damage. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing that that, uh, Professor Roos talks about, uh, which I was really interested in, was the idea that Australia is actually kind of, even in mainstream terms, quite a pioneer in a lot of these areas of polarisation that, that say, some of the more sort of toxic elements of, say, talkback radio in this country kind of... What a thing to be pioneering in. (laughs) I know, we do punch (laughs) above our weight. (laughs) Go us. We did it, guys, we did it. Wow. <laughs> um, I've completely lost the train of my question now. Um, uh, talk back radio. Yes, so yes. Um, and I, I suppose, do, do you have any conclusions on where that takes us going forward? Do, are we going to pull back from that role now? Or do you still do you see any kind of, with, say, the kind of, uh, you, could, you could argue, say, the diminishing impact of, say, some of the harder right elements in the Murdoch mm. media and things like that. Do you see that influence dying away a little bit? Or, or yeah, what are your views on that? I, like, it's not particularly glad or optimistic. I don't. Mm. But I also think that we're in a better position than somewhere like America or Britain. I think, you know, together with New Zealand, Australia, in relation to comparable countries uh, like the ones I mentioned, have a more practical approach. We have a smaller scale. We have compulsory voting. So we have a lot of advantages when it comes to regulation. Um, whether we choose to seize, the, seize that in the context where, yes, we don't have kind of a constantly threat messaging coalition government anymore, but we're hearing it in real time from the opposition, who's very deliberately dog-whistling to those fears, so I don't know if it's going to rise to the level of, you know, a practical approach, which says, you know, we have to label comment as comment to be constitute, to constitute news. We have to, it has to fill these criteria, and whether that would matter anyway, given all the factors that have driven a sizable portion of the population to social media for their news. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, I guess before we spoke to you, um, before we we got you on the line, Sarah, we were talking about. Um, you know, the developments in Rockhampton and other Queensland towns and this sort of sudden rise in very public vigilante And if you were telling that, the, the Middleton Territory with, with Peter Dutton's visit there and the, um, yeah, the kind of the, the rampant child abuse and things like that. Well, given the um, research that you did for this article, where do you see... Do, do you see that as an escalation or just another sort of thread in this in this time that we're in? Uh, well, probably both. Mm. Um, it is... It plays into kind of tactics that have been very usefully deployed and um, kind of incentivized in uh, right-wing politics and in the media that kind of supports those platforms. 
you know, it's very activating when they do these things, and that's why they do it. So I, you know, the fact that they continue to double down on them when we know what the consequences are, when their own government has commissioned research into the immediate impacts of that type of uh, punitive politicking, stigmatizing certain marginalized groups, um, socially constructed as marginalized. Um, and so they know it increases suicide rates amongst uh, gender-diverse teenagers and children. They know that it continues to have health impacts on the indigenous population. The problem isn't a lack of knowledge, publicly funded knowledge. The problem is a lack of implementation and accountability. Well, it also, I mean, this is no different from the situation in which Cassius Turvey was killed. Um, yeah. And it's the the fact after that happened that that the media is even entertaining these sort of um, vigilante activities. I find that alarming, even in Queensland. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes, no, I know exactly what you mean. And that kind of you know, it's not, I think, fanciful to look directly at the way all of these things have been connected for the last hundred years of extreme right politics. Mm. It's not, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time to say that you know, ideas have consequences, constantly chipping away at fundamental principles of democracy like the rule of law um, and legitimate exercises of government authority like public health responses in a pandemic, using them, weaponizing them um, in increasingly kind of constrained echo chambers on social media. That's where you get the link between what they're saying in Parliament, what's being reported on Sky News, and some of the more kind of freaky conspiracy theories about, you know, 5G or Big Pharma or QAnon. Mm. These things are links. They have been linked since the Second World War. Uh, there's nothing new in that respect, and yet we insist on seeing them as separate things that don't have real-world consequences, including the death of vulnerable children. And in terms of those those real world elements. I suppose if we if we kind of concede that the 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 um the world of the mind and, and ideas is in a pretty bad way at the moment. But we did talk you also talk about in your um in your piece a lot of the um you know the the, the hollowing out of institutions and, and say the death of work as we once knew it through casualization and the gig economy and, and, and things that used to hold people and families and communities together in in a concrete sort of way. Uh, are disintegrating and in, in, in their place these sorts of ideas take hold. Is there some element that in material senses we could make some changes or a government could make changes that could um, kind of right the ship in a certain way in terms, of, in terms of not allowing people to drift into these kinds of areas of isolation? I think absolutely. And I think, you know, academics like uh, Dr. Roos, who works with this, would say the same, although I didn't explicitly ask him about it, but he was the one who was kind of always returning to the sense of aggrieved entitlement mm. and stunted trajectories, which are the results of these, not just hollowing out kind of a social institution, but yeah, people starting to feel that cost of living crunch, the fears of very real economic insecurity and increasing economic precarity. So where does that fear go? Where does that blame go? And as a at the basic level of if we could make everybody feel, you know, equal or, you know, well off enough that they didn't have to displace those fears, I think there would be a, a marked improvement. 
uh, whether we're going to get there or whether we'll just see kind of a, a new iteration of these paranoias is another question. But I think it would definitely shore things up at a very practical level. And in terms of media sort of, um, you know, in, involvement and either reporting or, st- or stoking sometimes the flames, right. I think it's, you know, we can see and there's a, a long history of divisiveness and outrage, um, you know, is a, a, a lever that they pull <laughs> for, yeah. to gain readers and to, to gain traction. What do they? What do we need to do? What does the media? What 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 is the mainstream media's responsibility to um, pull back or to stop propagating this kind of or, or almost flirting with the danger that's involved with this? Well, I think like the normal standards of journalistic ethics, as they apply to news reporting, are good enough and they've been solid enough for you know so long that if If that was the only question, and we had kind of a regulator ensuring that they were respected and applied, that that would be not not enough, given Mm. that we have this kind of great exodus out of traditional forms of news, not even just you know, what the balance that you would see in, in an old-style newspaper where there might be a broader kind of range of opinion. But people are in those echo chambers. They're turning not just to the kind of mark of Sky News, per se, or Alex Jones, per se, or InfoWars, but the people who are posting them. They've become this commodity and a social economy of exchange online that shows that we belong to this group and we also have been aggrieved and we're with you and we support you and we see your grievance. So it's less about the content or the sources and it's more about the way in which they bind people together in in and out groups. Mm. So the social media landscape, which I'm not confident that we can regulate at that point. So I make the point in in the piece about how early... We, we still are in terms of Facebook's policies, Twitter's policies, obviously, um, Google. And so if we can't fix it at that end, we have to fix it at the other end of, of vulnerability. How do we get there? Some of it's economic and other parts are the choices that we make about how to live as a collective. It's it's such a big subject and even uh, we haven't even got on to some of the more extreme sort of, I guess, when people, although... Um, you know, the way Twitter is now, people don't have to go to Telegram anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, I mean, I sort of read recently that, you know, it, it is actually quite um, effective kind of sending, pushing people out to those more sort of extreme, you know, um, social media pl- uh, locations because they lose the, the power of their audience but then we've seen that sort of change again recently. So, like you said, it can't be regulated what what would be your sort of parting thought about all of this, having done this amazing sort of investigation where you've looked at so many different aspects of this from, you know, from a government point of view, from a policing point of view, from an academic point of view? Um, what are your thoughts about sort of what what's going to happen next? Well, again, I'm never optimistic. And this is a particularly, like, it's funny how my mind works because I'm trying to leave you with something optimistic. And <laughs> you don't have to. It's okay. We're not very okay. optimistic either. <laughs> but here's a horrifying nugget that I came in the guise of optimistic. Um, 
Matt Quinn, who I spoke to, who's the CEO and founder of Exit, which is a far-right disengagement initiative that he does mostly um, self-funded. He has said that, you know, many of the people who are most vulnerable to this sort of activation to extremist violence are entirely outside of social nets, uh, apart from that networked online space. Mm. And that um, in order to get kind of mental health care, they would, councils would need to door knock uh, certain streets to find out who they're not seeing, which is horrifying when you think wow. of the scale. Mm. But it's also, there's something I think positive in the person-to-person level. And that, you know, if we knew our neighbors, if we knew, if we kept it small in our own communities, that kind of, there is a school of psychology uh, that says that, you know, one person can stand in for the rest of the world sometimes. And I certainly saw that in the people that I spoke to who'd had a loved one radicalized in the last few years. Mm. So, either there's always that interpersonal level, which is not nothing, but also what we do with our vote and what we do with our voice always counts. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been wonderful talking to you and I really um, encourage all of our listeners to pick up the current edition of The Monthly and read your really thought-provoking and, and th- amazing piece, The Train Murders. Thanks for having Thanks so much, you guys. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Charlie, do you know what I love reading about most? <laughs> what, is, <laughs> what is the unironic point you're about to make, Jess? You know what my favourite subject is, <laughs> one that I relate to a lot and I feel there is always more to be said about? What is that? It's this real, very real, authentic, genuine occurrence called cancel culture. Oh, no. Mm. No, that's awful. Oh, I love it. I'm, a, I'm a, not a fan of that. <laughs> I just it ruins drink lives. up every <laughs> I drink up every little real, very real example mm. of someone being cancelled and then written about in uh, a newspaper or magazine article that is then written and by read by millions and millions oh, yeah. of people. Oh yeah, just look at poor Johnny Depp this week oh. <laughs> getting a standing ovation. Poor guy with the, at the uh, uh, yeah. An, Oh, I have I have a lot more to say about that. Which I <laughs> okay, maybe don't have maybe, time for maybe right we now. don't have time for your views on Johnny Depp. Maybe we don't have the time nor the legal fees to deal with your views yeah, on Johnny yep. Depp. Probably. Um, I assume you are referring oh, to. Yeah. So I should tell you what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So there's an article that um, <clears throat> is in the New Yorker that just came out in the last couple of days, and the headline is "The Party Is Cancelled." Inside a monthly New York City hangout where. Fired university professors and controversial TikTokers get together to have discussions they feel they can't have anywhere else. I love combining fired university professors with controversial TikTokers. That sounds like my kind of party. Charlie, can you tell me any more about this? Because well, I didn't make it past the third did, paragraph. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a piece um, about uh, what is called... Uh, brilliantly, the gathering of thought criminals. Oh. So, you know you're dealing with the, the creme de la creme there. Um, Organised by um, a woman named Pamela Pereski, who um, is a psychologist and, and former actor. And, it, and apparently she uh, gets some regular columns in the New York Times as well, so very cancelled. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the that's the thing about uh, the awfulness of of, of being cancelled is that you just find all these places to keep being cancelled. You find all these places <laughs> to, to keep being about, silenced. To talk about everyone how silenced keeps silencing you, you yeah. by by letting you say that you're being silenced in mm. their in their pages. Oh, it's so I mean, hard. It's a it's it a funny one. Hard. I mean, I think you know. One thing I think we should be fair on, on the reporter Emma Green and say that there is some maybe maybe a little bit milder than you'd like, but it's some pushback in in her reporting of it. She does point out that Pereski, for example, has has sort of lived quite a privilege among the intelligentsia kind of life her her entire life, and um, and and she does point out that Pereski can't actually define what she means by the concept of cancellation. Um, when she's sort of confronted with certain examples of it, she can't quite define what she's trying to get to with the idea of, of a group being cancelled. I mean, so I think it actually kind of weirdly... But my- can you describe the setup? That like this, what is this group? And because it's like, um, it sounded to me just like a a new way, it's like a, a new angle on a networking event. It's like yeah, a, yeah. some 200 members and every month 60 of them meet at this fancy bar and... Talk about how... And talk about things that they feel that they can't talk about anywhere else. <laughs> and the only rule is that you can't judge anyone <laughs> <laughs> for how terribly bigoted their views are. It's, it's, I think, it's like, oh, it just sounds like people who are really needy. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, again, I guess I'm, try, I'm trying to embrace the view of the group and not be too judgmental, but it's a, it's a strange thing, isn't it? It's like... There's a difference between you and me. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is a strange thing of, of, of a group that numbers a couple of hundreds and then sort of has this idea of itself as, as sort of so dangerous with its ideas that it's been outlawed and then it goes to a bar and just talks about <laughs> them and, and doesn't seem to see any disjun- disjunct between those two views of itself. Mm. It's like, no, no, you can openly discuss these ideas. It's just that some people will tell you you're a twat if you have them. Are they trying or- to, because I didn't make it very far and it's, it is actually a really long article. I, look, <laughs> yeah. I, I just scrolled through then and so I'm assuming there's more to it. But are they trying to sort of create this kind of uh, a contemporary kind of outlaw salon Vibe like does I, it sit within a historical context like that? Yeah, like, I mean, there's all you know. It, you know it's where the sort of overlaps intellectually with like you know sort of Barry Weiss and and that kind of like. I, 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 actually, I can't believe you just said intellectually and Barry Weiss. <laughs> <in the same. laughs> well, that's where they get. The, that's where the, that's where that's where Pereski gets the idea for the name from. The idea of uh, because because Barry Weiss um, sent out a message. Um, uh, an invite saying hello, fellow thought criminals. Right, but again, I think that's the other thing that's really interesting is the kind of the element of of self congratulation that, that that accompanies these kinds of groups. It's not enough to feel that you um, have been wronged. You've got to also think that you've been wronged because you're smarter than everyone else, mm. and that you're or, or that you're more willing to uh, face uncomfortable truths or uh, thrash out difficult ideas than others. And uh, so, and so to come to like why I think, because I think the reason that we started talking about this is why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why do these articles keep getting written? Uh, why, why why does this have to be continued? And I think... And it won't stop. Next month there'll be another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it won't... So, so my kind of best working theory, and it's a little bit cobbled together, but like it kind of actually follows on from what we were talking about um, with Sarah before, about the kind of yeah the the, the siloing of um, media consumption um, and the, the 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 yeah the simultaneous complete 
democratization of it, the fact that it's mm. available to everyone, but the siloing of, of consumption. Um, it reminded me, there's a piece I was reading during my holiday in the London Review of Books about, it's a review of a book about fan culture and how that has uh, infected kind of every way that it's been monetized and has, as a result has infected every way that we view the world, in, in at least in countries like Australia and America and the UK, um, and, and kind of had these really strong political effects. So that's it's, it's how the author kind of explains a phenomenon like Donald Trump. You, you're, you're attached to him now like the, you would be to a sports team. doesn't matter... It doesn't matter what, what he does. What he does wrong at a certain point, you've attached yourself to him. You have, and, to, and defend you him have to defend him, whatever the may come. The same way that you would say, oh, look, it's just that the refs are always giving Leeds unfair fouls and that's mm. why we're losing all the time. He's only getting to, to you know, being he's only being brought in front of court after court because the system is rigged against him. You know, you start mm. thinking that way. There's a, um, and there's a line in it that I thought was really good. It's a piece by um, a guy called William Davies. Um, he talks about how you know the, the, the explosion of, of forums at about the same time that, that, that marketers and politicians realized that they could really monetize or, or motivate fan culture. You see people like Tony Blair talking about their favorite football players and stuff. Mm. Um, the, oh, the, yeah, um, Morrison tried really hard. Morrison tried very hard. I mean, it, by, by this stage, it's just part and parcel for if you're going to be prime minister, you're going to try and pretend you're a normal bloke with your the things Sporting you're a fan team, of. Yeah. But he talks about forums as uh, spaces that have given obsessions, identities, animosities, passions, conspiracy theories, and much else, a visibility and global reach previously unthinkable. Uh, Campos, that's the author of the book, interprets this as a problem of social psychology, whereby fellow fans grant one another permission to become ever more unhinged in their devotion, a kind of arms race of unreason. But the internet also does away with the technological bottleneck, the finite bandwidth that the printing press had. Uh, this once required the bourgeoisie to develop an editorial norms and the idea of a public interest. When only limited information can be made public, it is, in principle at least, crucial that you carefully select this and verify it. Uh, once there is sufficient space for every opinion and claim to be published, what need is there for anyone to be looking down on them from a position of assumed disinterest? It is less a marketplace of ideas and now a marketplace of passions, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think that actually gets to something, the disjunct that we're looking at here is that if you work in a very rarefied place like The New Yorker, which is such legacy media, mm -hmm. and, and rightly so, it obviously produces incredible work and has for a very long time. You're perhaps a little bit stuck, or your editors at least, the people who decide what The New Yorker is and what it's for, are still in the that idea of the public interest, that ideas ought to always be thrashed out in the public view, either that that's when they become malignant and difficult when you don't deal with them and you drive them underground, not realising that, 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 that that's thriving anyway. You don't have to give them airtime in your big publication. Those ideas are going to thrive anyway. That's okay, in theory. <laughs> but there are some other really, really big ideas that are being thrashed out oh, yeah. um, on the bodies and, you know, lives of Americans right now Oh yeah, um, yeah. across the country that perhaps would be a little bit more pressing yeah, yeah, yeah. to discuss in The New Yorker. Oh, but then maybe you're right, you know, maybe... It is because of that. It's that type, but it's not just in New Yorker. We see one every. Oh, sure, we see one in the Washington Post. Here. We see one in. You know, yeah. Oh yeah, we see we see the it Good in, Weekend. Yeah. Wherever. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, you God, know. yeah. Oh, sorry, yes, no, and the 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 uh, you know they cancelled me as a human being kind of headline yeah. is one that we reach to all the time. I'm I'm not saying 
sorry, uh, maybe that sounded like I was coming up with a long justification <laughs> for why it was there. I'm saying no. I'm just. It's interesting, but I still I, don't quite get it. That's what I think the mindset behind it is. I don't mm. think that's correct. I think I think it's it's a misreading of the situation, and it's one based on material conditions that don't exist anymore. Or maybe they don't actually know how to cover yeah. some of these issues yeah, yeah. that are confronting them. You know, America is at a crossroads and as Sarah mm. mentioned, you know, they are more advanced in the sort of religious extremism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was some of the, um, you know, there was uh, some of the research that went into her article and, and um, also was played out in a podcast Um is that you know that the the that sort of mainstreamization of of this mm-hmm. kind of these kind of extreme right wing you know Christian values is happening at such a pace? Yeah, yeah. And you'd think something like that <laughs> might be worthy of of discussion. And then, oh, by the way, I mean, a lot of this yeah. legacy media still gets stuck on these kind of very liberal kind of ideas. Yeah, yes, yeah. so exactly, exactly. The, the small L liberal idea mm. that, 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 that all that, the best disinfectant in sunlight, and we can just we can just thrash these ideas out, and we'll all or we'll thrash these it, ideas yeah. out in a very safe way. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. A, a a week a monthly gathering of high society. In New yeah, York. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. And, I, and again, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's also worth mentioning that for all their faults, you know, The New Yorker has written a huge amount about abortion law and, and you know, they, 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 they're not ignoring the no, more, more pressing yeah. issues, but it is just tedious when this comes up every yeah. month. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.